parallel the scripture is to what Donald Trump was saying. And the scripture is pointing to us. Okay? It's not pointing to us. These are harsh words leveled against us. And it's as if God is talking at his inauguration. And he's turning around and talking to us on the platform. Taking aim at our hearts and telling us how bad we are. And how wicked we are. And that we are sinful. We are guilty. And, and, and we can do just like what I think many of those political representatives did. We can just ignore those words. Like, yeah, God, you just blow your wind. Whatever the scripture, I'm just going to ignore it. Or justify ourselves. Like the Jews did. Like, oh, it doesn't apply to me. It applies to this guy over here, right? Or it applies to you, right? Sitting right next to me. Or we can attack. Like, oh, you know, Paul's just overstating the case, speaking hyperbole. But I guess my challenge is that we might accept these words as rightly describing the culture of our hearts. And there needs to be repentance and there must be change that takes place. Because we're going to be dealing with issues just like the senators and representatives up there. They've heard this before, and you've heard this before. My, my text this morning is Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. So we just work our way through Romans. Um, thanks to Darren for taking the most difficult text in the chapter in the book of Romans last week, 1 through 8. I'll just skip over that. You can listen to his message. It's a good message. I appreciate that. But we're, we're coming to verse 9 which is plain and open, the message is, is easy for us to see. If you didn't bring a Bible, looking for one of your pew, pew number, uh, page number 940, we'll get you there. My message is simply entitled this, We Are All Sinners. Now, again, like Donald Trump's message, this is nothing new. I mean, we've all heard this message before, that we are sinners. In fact, I, as I think about how, how do I oftentimes just, just condense the gospel, it's like this. You're a sinner, and you need a Savior. We are sinners. We need a Savior. How many times have I said that from this pulpit? I have no idea. It's been my mantra. We're sinners. We need a Savior. And so you've heard this before, just like the representatives, but my prayer, and I've been praying that you would acknowledge your sin, and that we collectively might say, yes, we are sinners, but that that might come to you. And that you might realize that, yes, I am a sinner. Because really, that's what we need. We need a a heartfelt, deep impression upon our souls. Not not just with our minds. Yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. But like deep into the heart, like you feel it. That's like my aim this morning, is that all of us would feel the depth of of our sin this morning. That we realize that Paul speaks the truth. We have no place to run. We can't ignore the words or justify ourselves or, or uh, object to his words. Because, in fact, in chapter 3, verse 19, he's going to say, all objections are done. But that we cry out to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That we would embrace John Newton's words. Amazing grace, we sang. How sweet the sound that saved a what? You know what a wretch is? A deplorable, despicable miscreant but that's who we are and that's what the scriptures tell us we are apart from the saving transforming power of God in Christ Jesus Romans 3 verse 9 what then 
Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all, are, are all under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. And they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of a law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. These words are really a culmination of everything that that Paul has said since chapter 1 and verse 18. In fact, really, it closes up the first part of the book of of Romans. We're having problems with our our projectors today, but there's a teaching slide in which I've I've shown you the the outline of Romans. It's sin first, and then salvation, then sanctification, and security and sovereignty and service. That's what it's about. Nice S's right along along the side there. And, And we're now finishing up the first section, the sin salvation, next week. We get to the salvation section, which begins in verse 21. But now, in contrast to all that's been said about our sin, but now it's not the the wrath of God that's coming upon us. Now it's the righteousness of God that's being revealed to us. And I look forward to next week we can tackle what many consider to be the most important paragraph in the Bible. So come back. Come back next week. Well, my first point comes from verse 9. I'm simply calling it the summary. Because that's what it is. It's a summary. It's kind of concluding everything. Paul says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. There's the summary statement, right? Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. It's a perfect summary. That's sort of like an outline of what Paul did. Chapter 1, Gentiles are under sin. Chapter 2, Jews are under sin, chapter 3, both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Kind of looking back there, Romans 1, I dealt with the sin of the Gentiles. That is, those who have not received the written revelation of the Bible, either the Old Testament or the New Testament. In Paul's day, that may have been the, the Gentiles living in Israel, right, where the covenant didn't necessarily come to them. They could only get in as proselytes, but many of them were maybe Romans, not even interested in things. Or they may have been the Gentiles living in Asia, like far away, far away from Israel and the influence of of God's people. In our day, it, it might be those in America really have no exposure to the church. I mean, there are more and more and more people like that today, whether they are immigrants coming from other nations or whether even Americans with a spiritual Bible taken out of schools and you know, religious courses can't be taught and everything just kind of taken away. There are people. I, I remember one of my, uh, um, a, um, a student at my alma mater in college. So this would be a college student called me up and asking for funds. And uh, I talked to her about my testimony a little bit, just explained what God has done in my life, about, you know, the Sermon on the Mount really affected my heart, because of Romans chapter 7, I said, do you know what the Sermon on the Mount is? And she said, no. Here is a, a liberal arts educated gal, 
and she'd never heard of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, that's in education that just the people, this could, Gentiles easily talking about many people in America, um, or it could be talking about the savage animist way in the backwoods of Africa someplace. Those who have no exposure to the gospel. And God, Paul says that God is angry with them because of their sin. Oh, indeed, they didn't sin against the law, but they sinned against God in that they sinned against creation because creation testifies to the eternal power and divine nature of God. And rather than seeing and acknowledging this God that they knew, they did not honor him or give thanks. And so God, in his anger has given them up, and he has given them up to all sorts of ugly consequences. And particularly even you can see there about these people claim to be wise and become fools. And God says, you think you're so wise, you're a fool. And he gives them over to sexual immorality, and particularly homosexuality. He gives them to debased mind to do all these bad things. He says, you refuse to acknowledge me? I'll let you go. You can do what you want to do. And in Romans 2, he, he makes a turn. Um, and, and particularly here in the, the first 16 verses, he's, he's, he's talking about the moralist, the one who knows enough to condemn the Gentiles. Say, yeah, Paul, you're right. Those Gentiles, they deserve the wrath of God. Right? But they don't realize that they themselves, in passing this moral judgment, have that moral standard upon themselves with a conscience that they themselves are condemned as well. And these very well could be Jews, but it's not necessarily the Jews. But the result of them, the moralist, is because, Paul says, of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, they may well be Jews, may well applicable to us today, would be like, like moral good people. Like perhaps you know lots of people like that who, who maybe don't go to church, but who wouldn't call themselves a Christians, but know enough about what's good and bad. In fact, apparently they stay away from church because of all the hypocrites in the church. Because they see what's bad in the church. They say, oh, no, that's bad. That's really, I don't want to be part of that. See, they're condemning themselves because they know what's right and wrong in those matters. But in verse 17, then Paul takes his aim and he's got uh, the, the Jew clearly in sight here. But if you call yourself Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God... The Jew who thinks he knows all about God, thinks he, he's right because he is a, a child of the covenant, but fails to walk in his ways. And, and that, that's who Darren was, really, what Darren's text preached about last week. The Jews who had all these religious advantages, and yet failed to walk according to them. And, and the question in the passage last week was, well, is God still righteous to judge them? If he was, they're the children of the covenant, and how can, how can that all work? And, and the bottom line is this, yes. They were given great blessings. In fact, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Okay, sidelight here. Whenever there's a question in Romans, work really hard to figure out why that question was asked and then how he answers that question. Because his questions don't come out of midair, out of thin air. Sometimes they're hard to discern. Sometimes they're really easy to discern. But when he asks a question, try to figure out what was it beforehand. And if he seems to answer according to what you're talking about, then you're good. All right, so the question here, what advantage has the Jew? Basically, he's, he'd crushed the Jew since chapter 2, verse 17. You got all these blessings, but circumcision is a value, but you're not even keeping it. And you have the law, but you're not even good. So, well, what is a value, is it? And he says, well, it's, it's great in, in every way. But the problem is that they failed to take advantage of their blessings, and the wrath of God was rightly falling upon the Jews as well, who had heard of God and embraced God, but had not, um, not followed 
the ways of God. He says in chapter 3, verse 5 is the point. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict unwrath on us? I'm speaking in a human way. By no means. Right? In other words, right? God is totally just and righteous to inflict his wrath upon us because we are unrighteous, even though we're children of the covenant. That's the main point there. That God will is righteous to judge the Jew. And in verse 9, it's interesting, he asks the same question he does in verse 1, but get a different response. What then, verse 9, are we Jews any better off? And he's saying that because uh, we, we've got benefits. Verse 1, what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way, but we failed. So are we better off? We failed in it. And Paul says, no, no advantage because you've lost your blessing. You've lost the advantage. You haven't taken advantage of your blessings. In fact, this is the reality. Because of sin, any advantage the Jews had had been negated. And I just say that also like for church-going people, for people who profess a love for Jesus or, or, or whatever, profess they believe, that, that you have great advantage, great blessings, but they can all be negated. They can all be negated if you don't walk in the way that God would, would have you to walk. It's because it's the Spirit of Christ working in you that, that walks that way. But that's Paul's point of Romans 1 and 2. Is that we've already charged. In fact, as he says, right, in verse 9. What then are the Jews? Are we better off? No, not at all. Like we Jews, we're down just a Gentile level because we haven't taken advantage of things. He says it's not better because we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And that is my first point, right? There's the summary. This is what we've charged. Chapter 1, Gentiles. Chapter 2, Jews. In other words, we are all sinners. Jew and Greek alike church grower and non-church goer we're all sinners and that is, that's like one of the most basic basic tenets of christianity is that we're sinful right we are, we are, are sinners and, and how amazing it is that people fail to grasp this um our youth retreat this weekend we spent a few hours sunday afternoon at nash recreational center it's a fitness gym like swimming um you know, um, gym, basketball, weights, that sort of thing. I mean, that's where Steffi in the weight room did all of her, her chin-ups. I challenge any of you to match that, all right? Get on video. I'll put it on the Weekly Word if you can match that. That would be great. Um, but anyways, about a half hour before we're leaving, I kind of sat in the, uh, in the area, kind of where got, we're congregating, and I uh, saw a guy I didn't know, and struck up, TV was on, and so I asked him about it, the football, and he found out that he played football in college a little bit. We talked about that, whatever. But one thing went to another, and, and he, he just figured out, well, these kids are here. Oh, well, I'm part of that. It was, it was a church youth camp. We're at this Lutheran Outdoor Ministry Center, and he had some relationship with that. And so it turned really into a, an opportunity for the gospel. And he told me about the church he grew up in, and just how he left that church when they began to think about the issue of homosexuality. Like, what, what's the public stance on homosexuality? He's like, really? you got to have a public stance on that? Why are you going to have a public stance on homosexuality? Um, and and I, I said, well, you know, I don't know what church you're talking about, but here's the issue. It's, it's really not what, what we want. It's what God says in our culture today. Are we going to define that right? Are we going to define it wrong? I mean, I, I, I said that, you know, homosexuality is no different than drunkenness or adultery. God has called it a sin. It's, it's a sin. We cannot allow that to be celebrated in our church. To do so is an affront to God. And that's, I think, probably what 
your church was talking about a public stance. And then, then I say, okay, but here's how the gospel works, okay? Is that, is that Jesus was a, a great friend to sinners, like homosexuals and drunkards and thieves and liars and prostitutes and alcoholics. And, and he loved the worst of sinners, but he never let them remain in their sin. He always called them out of it. And, and certainly, right, people with sin will struggle with it. The, the alcoholic will struggle with his um, addiction to alcohol. Homosexual struggle, same-sex attraction. But here's, here's, here's what's at stake. Is it celebrated? Are you going to celebrate that? Or are you going to acknowledge a sin and hate it with a passion? And then I quoted from Romans chapter 7. I've been working. Some of the problem passage in Romans is Romans 6, 7 for me. And so I've been memorizing those chapters, just kind of going over over them in my, my mind. And Romans 7, verse 15 says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And, and there what I see is, is someone, he's saying that, he says in verse 16, chapter 7, he says, now if, if, I, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that's good, right? I'm affirming that, that the law is good and the law is right, but I am not. He said, he said I see that no, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I, I see that, that I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want, I keep on doing. And there's, there's the sinner who's involved and engaged, and he hates his sin, but yet still in the flesh is caught up with it, and finally comes down to say, wretched man that I am, who will separate me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And of course, the answer is Jesus Christ. And he goes into Romans chapter 1, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's the gospel, there's the good news. And, and trying to explain, because sometimes, I just, I just fear with this guy that, Oftentimes, the church can come down condemning it. No, 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 bad, 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 bad. And Jesus brought in, but called to repentance. And those who are engaged in sin and hate it and the struggle with that, that's like exactly where we need to be, right? We see our sin. We see how wretched, how wretched we are. And then we see how glorious Christ is. Well, soon after I explained that to him, um, he directed the conversation as often as the case. A lot of times people like that will direct it to, well, what, what about that person in Africa? Are they should be saved? Or this time he directed me towards a, a teenage girl who was born in Iran who basically was uh, arranged marriage to a middle-aged man and was basically destined to a life of slavery. So what about her? She never heard the gospel. She can't even read. She won't ever be taught to read. She's never been exposed to a church. Never, maybe never meet any Christians. Can God condemn her? And, and, and I think that in some measure, he in his mind, if God justifies her, then he's got another way through Jesus and can have self-justification for himself. And so I, I sought to turn attention away from her and that it's not hypothetical, but it's hypothetical for him, right? Because he's heard the gospel. I just explained it to him. And I said, yeah, you, well, you, you, what about you? You're a sinner in need of a savior, and his intellectual pride, I, I don't think he understood. But that's the point of verse 9, though, is that we need to brace that we are all sinners. Now, also one of the things, this is not just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm not perfect. I mean, everybody says, yeah, I'm not perfect. 
But we are all sinners shows how deep our depravity is. Let's go to our second point. We've seen the summary in verse 9. And now we see the scriptures in verses 10 through 18. And these are just going to bang and bang and bang and bang. And just show us how deep and wretched and sinful and wicked and at fault we are. Paul writes, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now this is simply an avalanche of scripture. Paul is just picking from here and from there and from there and from there and from there. Um... He puts forth the testimony of Scripture how sinful we are. Now, given the time and given the interest, we, we could look at these Old Testament passages. We could read them. We could look at them, look at their context, ponder their truths, and, and really get in to understand right, what passages are coming from. By the way, the, the Psalms are coming from Psalm 14. Uh, a lot from the Psalms. Psalm 5, verse 9. Psalm 140, verse 3. Some are from Isaiah. Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. Psalm 36, verse 1. So some, from the Psalms and from Isaiah, we could delve into each of those and all of those, and we could get our doctorate on that. And you know what we come to? Okay. Cliff notes. We're all sinners. That's what it's talking about. It's a point that Paul's trying to get across. So see, when, when God looks... Upon humanity, he doesn't find any who seeks for God. When he listens to humanity, he hears filth and venom come from their mouths. When he watches humanity, he sees sin come at every corner. Let's just, let's just consider God's search, okay? Um, Psalm 14. You, you can turn there or you can just stay right here. But this is the only passage we're really going to look at. But it says this, Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. And what Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3 say, they're, they're, they're identical psalms, is basically this. That God is on his perch in heaven, and he's looking down. And he says, okay, well, let's see. Who's, who's searching for God? Who understands? And you know what he finds? None of us. Paul couldn't have been more emphatic, and Paul's not emphatic. Psalm 14 and 53 is, none is righteous. Okay, there's one negation. No, not one. There's three. No one understands. That's four. No one seeks for God. That's five. And then here, turning aside, this is the positive negative. That is six. All have turned aside. Together become worthless. No one does good. Not even I count eight negations of just trying to say none, 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 none. In other words, we all have followed after our own ways. Or, or to use Isaiah's terminology, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We haven't gone God's way. We've turned to our own way. That's what, what Paul is getting at when he used the terminology in Ephesians 2.1 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not like kind of limping along or being dragged. We were dead. 
motionless, not seeking God. That's what Jesus was getting at when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The idea, the clear truth here is we are so sinful that we don't even seek God at all. None of us seeks for God. That's why grace is such a miracle. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. So, I once was lost, but found my way home. Is that what it says? No, this is the child in the wilderness who's lost. And mom and dad come and search for him and find the child. and back home. I was blind. I didn't open my own eyes. I may have wanted to see, but God is the one who opened my eyes. Spiritual man, a natural man can't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the folds of God. I, I was wandering, and he was the one who came and sought me. You know, there are churches across our land who tout themselves being seeker-sensitive. That is, they're sensitive to Christians who are non-Christians who are seeking after God. Okay, now, I, I, I understand what they're saying. I appreciate what they're doing. I appreciate their heart to reach the lost. Okay? But um, my point here is that their language just isn't right. Because there aren't any non-Christians seeking after God. Non-Christians are going away from God. It's God who's doing the seeking. Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. And, and, and what they really mean is maybe non-Christian. Maybe they, they mean this, is that we are a, a church for hurting people. We're a church for broken people, for needy people. Hurting people looking for hope. Just like uh, my life, I just need help. And maybe this church will help. That's what they mean. Or, or maybe they're broken people looking for solutions. Like, uh, my life is a re- I just need some sort of solution to fix things up. And maybe they'll happen to join us and find Jesus is the idea. that may- There are needy people looking for help. But, but there aren't non-Christians seeking for God because God isn't even on their radar and this is not how it works. I mean, if anyway, it's the other way around. It's that God's grace comes and rescues us. And find a way, that's the gospel. It's not that we go searching and find, right? We're not going through the woods finding this treasure and all of a sudden break out into this meadow, this clearing, say, oh, there it is. There's God. There's the... No, it's like we are dark and deep and God comes in. He takes us and he brings us to the meadow. That's salvation. God does it. And the dark you understand your sin the lighter will be the glory of, of the gospel. The better will be grace. That, that's what happens when God like, like inspects humanity or looks upon humanity. What happens when he's listening? Verse 13 and 14. It's not good, by the way. Describes the filth that come out of people's mouths. Their throat is an open grave. They use your tongue, their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under the lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Here, look at the illustration that, that the scriptures use of our tongues. They are open graves, right, with a dead corpse rotting in it, all maggots and all, letting off a big rotting stench. They are poisonous venom, describing the, the power of our words to hurt. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and often what comes out of our mouth is venom. Cursing, bitterness flows from our mouth. And, and all you need to do is just listen to someone, listen to anyone for some time. And there may be good there, but there will eventually 
soon or eventually be some bad. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And as we all have corrupt hearts, our speech will reflect that. Our words are far from faultless. Jesus said, if anyone, James said, if anyone does not stumble what he says, the perfect man, able to bridle his whole body as well. And of course, there's only been one man who's been perfect who never sinned in what he said, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. But listen, our words will condemn us. Jesus said, Matthew 12, 36 and 37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So when God looks to humanity, he finds none seeking God. When he listens to humanity, he finds he listens to poison on our lips. And when he watches humanity, it's what they do. Sin abounds. And that's the point of verses 15 through 18. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. We, we, we just see right hatred in verses 15 and 16, just strife and envy and ruin. And, and we see strife in verse 17, no peace. We see humanism in verse 18, right? not accepting God. It's the fool who said in his heart, there is no God. And all of us apart from God are, are fools. Listen, it's not a, a pretty picture, but it's the reality of all of us apart from God. Is, is that Adam and Eve are representatives didn't want anything to do with God. They disobeyed Him, and then when they, they wanted out. They wanted to run from Him. They hid from Him. The first son, Cain, killed Abel. In the days of Noah, of all the mankind on earth, saved only eight. Only eight. And that was only by His grace. But it's because of what God saw. It says in Genesis 6-5 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every thought and intention of the heart was only evil continually? Is it both in the breadth of the earth and in the depth of the earth? God saw in Noah's day sin. And so it was so bad, such a stench to God, he destroyed the world, save eight. And the reason why things continue today, why we don't have another destruction, is not because, oh, we've changed and we're better now. No, because in Genesis 8, verses 21 and 22, God says exactly the same thing. I'm not going to destroy the world because man's intentions of his heart is only evil from his youth. We're just the same before the fall. The only reason why we're not destroyed today is because of God's grace. He has every reason to de- destroy us. And, and you need to realize that, that that's where you stand. That the sin is there. Is that, is that we deserve our condemnation. That, that's what I, I want us to feel this morning. That we all deserve condemnation Apart from the but of verse 21, when the righteousness of God comes in, demonstrated in Jesus Christ publicly, so that God can be just in punishing him and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. And if you see yourself dark and sentenced to despair, then the glories of the gospel comes out. You know, we, we talk at, at a, a church about our Our purpose, our reason for existing is here, right here. Enjoying His grace and extending His glory. And the idea here is the more you see the darkness of your sin, the more the grace is going to be. And the more you're going to enjoy His grace. And the more you're going to extend His glory and having a desire to reach out to your friends and your neighbors. And you're going to say, yeah, I've known the grace of God in my marriage. I really want to see these people know the grace of God in their marriage and invite them to the Better Marriage Conference. You're going to see that sort of passion go in your heart as you see the the grace there. It's the old story. I've heard this sermon illustration many times before. In fact, I even saw a graffiti on a wall recently that uh, 
It's about the, the preacher who's preaching in open air. And he looks off in the distance and the cart is rolling with the prisoner condemned to die, soon to be hanged at the gallows. And you know what he says, right? There but by the grace of God go I. And that's what you need to catch from this text. That's how, how you need to feel. Do you feel it? Do you really feel that but by the grace of God, that is me? That's the thrust of all of Romans 1-3. through And if you don't feel that, you've kind of missed Paul's pathos, his passion, his feeling that we need to feel utterly condemned and lost, that apart from Jesus, we would be carried away to our execution. In fact, I just want to pray now for the Spirit to bring these feelings into accord with what our mind knows. Lord, we know in in Romans 8 that we do not even know how to pray for what we ought, but the Spirit intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And Lord, I would even pray right now for all of us here in this room, me included, God, that I, that I would feel myself condemned apart from Christ. That I would, I would know, God, that reality that would be ever before my mind. I pray we would see how bad our plight was. Uh, I just think of the, the, the Gentiles at Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13. Who, when the Jews rejected the message and the gospel went to them, how they rejoiced with spontaneous joy that, that they were recipients of the gospel. God, help us to have that joy, to know that sin, as dark as it is, God is made so white in Jesus. God, and even if there are unbelievers here, people who don't believe this, who just kind of came in, or some children, I, I pray, God, you'd convict their hearts so they might see their sin not as something to be rejoiced in, but as something to be hated and shunned, and that there's a willing Savior ready to be grabbed. God, that you would work in their hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my last point, real quickly. Now we've seen the summary, verse 9. We've seen the scriptures, verses 10 through 18. And now we see the silencing. This just sets us up. Now, verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become accountable to God. For by the works of a law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Like, so, in other words, after reading verses 10 through 18, there should be like this, Silence that's just like, whoa, that is us. That we are condemned. As Spurgeon said, the true condition of the whole world is this, guilty before God. This is the right attitude for the whole human race to stand with its finger on its lip, having nothing to say as to why it should be condemned. Silenced. We ought to be condemned. You're right. Ray Stedman said it like this. He said, you can always tell when someone is close to becoming a Christian when they shut up and stop arguing backwards. Back. Self-righteous people are always saying, but, but this, but, but I, yes, but I do this, I do that. They're always arguing. Or might I say, they're bringing up teenage girls in Iran. 
But when you see the true meaning of the law, their mouth is shut. When you read a statement like this, there's really nothing left to say, is there? I don't even know how to preach this. Because we should be done in our sin. And so, so I guess, do you feel this in your heart? I, I mean, maybe may a, good, a good test of this. How much do you love the Savior? Do you remember the story when Jesus came into uh, Simon's house? Simon, not Peter, Simon the Pharisee. And uh, as, as he went into there, there was a, a woman of the city who was a, a sinner who heard, oh, Jesus is there and brought some ointment and, and began weeping and kissing his dirty feet and cleaning them and wiping his feet with her tears and with her hair and right down there at the feet of Jesus. Remember that scene? And they're like, oh, well, if, if Jesus really knew who that was, that sinner... Right? That, that evil person, look at all the sins that she's committed. And, and that's, that's true, that she was a sinner. But Jesus then told the story of the money lender who had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii, another 50, right? One owned, owned whatever, $5,000, another owned $50,000. And one was forgiven. They both were forgiven. Which one loved more? The one was forgiven more. And then basically Jesus said, right? Listen, look at this woman. When I, when I entered your house, Simon, you gave me no kiss. You didn't give me water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't anoint my head, but she's anointed my feet. And I say, therefore, I tell you that her sins, though there are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's forgiven loves little. And so a good, a good barometer of this might be this. But do I really feel the depth of my sins? Am I really quiet? Well, how much do you love Jesus? And a good path to loving Jesus, seeing the darkness of your sin, to, to realize the, the chasm that he spanned. To see how far the cross went. From the wages of sin is death the free gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the more you see and understand how far your wages brought you, the more you realize what a blessing your eternal life is. And that's in Luke 7. And then in Luke 8, the beginning, it talks about the, the women who are following Jesus, one of whom was Mary Magdalene. Remember what happened to Mary Magdalene? She had all the demons, seven demons in her cast out. I wish we'd know more about Mary Magdalene to see what kind of woman she was. I think she would have wept at the feet of Jesus as well. Do you see your sin? You, you don't understand grace unless you understand your sin. And in fact, you, you can't be saved unless you understand your sin. And, and we live in a society today that people don't see their sin. People think themselves to be pretty good. I, I commend to you the ministry of Ray Comfort, the way of the master. Are you familiar with that, some of you? Just, just go way of the master, Ray Comfort, whatever. And, and he... And one of the things he does is he, he just is one way of evangelism. I think he gets an error. He says, this is the only way. I don't think it's the only way. Jesus was varying his way, but it is an effective way. And basically what he does is he goes through the Ten Commandments. He, maybe you've probably seen this before and said, just one, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? These are the ten rules that God gave us. How are you doing? Right? Have you ever told a lie? And then people say, well, yeah. Have you ever stole something? And they say, no. He said, well, you, you told me you're a liar. Right? And then, well, yeah, did you ever steal anything little? Yeah, well, yeah, I did that. What about, 
Um, The law says you shouldn't kill, but Jesus even said, got the heart of that. Have you been angry with somebody? Well, yeah, I guess I've been angry, right? Have you ever taken the name of the Lord your God in vain? Well, yeah, I guess I've sworn a a bit. I said, what about adultery? Jesus said, if you you commit adultery in your mind, you're guilty of adultery. And so, okay, so how are you doing? I just went through five commandments. He says, you're you're lying adulterous thief who has um, blasphemed the name of God and deserves death. And I think he does a great job at showing people the, the reality of their sin. And, and we need to get people there. Just encourage you to know the Ten Commandments. You can use that technique or use that line of, of reasoning. Because it's so, it's so easy to miss that. Like we were at Kids Club the other day. And um, talking about uh, some story. I forget what it was. Uh, you were looking at the story of Jesus. And, uh, and he was charged with blasphemy. And uh, one of the kids said, oh, I'm so glad, blasphemy. Yeah, that's not, that's not such a big crime. I'm like, no. We stopped the video and we said, no, 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 blasphemy is a big crime. They got it exactly right. If Jesus was blasphemy, he, ever, he deserved his death, absolutely. But he wasn't blaspheming because he was God Almighty. But we need to understand that using the name of God once in vain senses us to eternal hell. Well, like those around the platform listening to Donald Trump, you can ignore these words. Just say, oh, that's just a wind. That's just old, old, old scriptures, old dusty parchments. You can justify yourself by saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not so bad. Or you can go on the attack. Say, uh, no, I don't believe that. Scriptures are wrong. Or what about this? Or what about that? I just say, where are you? The reality is that by the works of a law, no human flesh should be justified, verse 20. You're not going to be justified by your human works. But see, it's through the law that comes the knowledge of sin. When we see how we fail to live up to God's standard, that we seal that we are a sinner. I simply close with a statement from Paul, 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost, or the best, or the chief, or whatever your translation says. I heard one man argue, this is totally right, he says, you should be able to say that of yourself, that I'm the foremost sinner, because you know your sin far more than you know other people's sins, and you know the depth of your depravity far more than ever escapes your heart into action. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm the foremost, and we're going to deal in chapter 3, verse 21, and following about how exactly that salvation took place. I'll come back. Let's pray. Father, we are, are thankful, God, that you would save a wretch, a despicable miscreant like me, like us. Lord, I would pray here at Rock Valley Bible Church, God, you would help us to see our sin. God, that we might, first of all, just rejoice in the salvation that you give, that we would truly enjoy your grace. God, also, though, I, I pray, God, that we would be pushed to extend your glory God, we see this message that people need to, need to believe and, and embrace. God, may we extend it with joy. God, may we extend it with delight and show people how it's, it's not the, the path of the world. The path of the world will bring death and destruction. I've seen people destroyed in their sin, just brought into weak people. God, but, but the grace of God builds up and edifies. And so, God, may we be those people and may we encourage people preach that message, talk about that message with other people. Oh God, may we be eager to preach the gospel. 
God, so affect us deeply, change us, and give us mouths to speak. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.